Okay, take your Bible, and we're going to go to two places today. First, we're going to look at Matthew 16. Kind of briefly, not the big point of what we're going after today. Then we'll go over to John chapter 4. The series, we started this last week, the series we're in is um, Discipling with the Gospels. The Gospels, the Gospels and Discipleship. I'm trying to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, trying to cover sections and cover portions that would be helpful in your disciple making, would be helpful to be able to answer questions. I'm not going to go verse by verse through all these, but I am going to take kind of things that I think are helpful. Last week we started the series, we're taking that phrase, son of man, son of man, that you see so much. Any new student to the scriptures will read that and just think, oh, it's just saying that Jesus is human. And I would say yes, but actually much more. Jesus uses that so much because it has prophetic implications of Daniel 7 that points to the coming king. It points to his absolute rule and authority. But also, that word son of man uh, also has the idea of the second Adam, the second son of Adam. Jesus would be the second Adam to make right all that the first Adam did wrong. And so there's an element to this son of man. But something I don't think I pointed out to you last week that leads us into today is one of the reasons he used that to describe himself is it, it was an accurate representation of Daniel 7. And I would say actually even an accurate representation of Psalm um, Psalm 8, um, Ezekiel 2 through 7. Uh, so we, we see it. He's re- referring back to the Old Testament to describe aspects of what the Messiah would be like. But also another aspect. Jesus had to be very careful um, about what he said and what he did depending on where he was at. Okay, uh, Daniel, if you'll put a map up here. Just kind of want to help you here. Um, you can kind of see different regions. You see Galilee at the top, Samaria, Judea, and Jerusalem is there. You see to the right of the Jordan River, the Decapolis, and you see Perea there. Now, what's interesting is when you're reading through the scriptures, sometimes you'll see the word Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Decapolis. You'll see a lot of Galilee because that was where most of his ministry actually took place. Judea, you'll, you'll see that's where things get really heated and intense. And you'll see as you study the life of Jesus, he's crossing, he's crossing into Galilee, the Decapolis. He's going into Judea, sometimes through Samaria. But what you'll find is this, that a lot of times when he's in this Judea area, this is where things get the most heated, okay? So those in Judea were a higher Jewish population, especially around Jerusalem. And for Jesus to use the word Messiah, anointed one, Christ, right? For him to use um, that word Messiah, that would escalate things pretty fast. That would escalate the timeline of, of what Jesus was doing. See, for if you were Jewish you, and you lived in Jerusalem, you lived in Judea in that region, you were looking for a Messiah. But you actually saw the idea of Messiah as just being someone more political, someone who was going to overthrow Roman oppression. And so what Jesus didn't want to do was start this kind of revolution where people thought Jesus was just some political Messiah and they were going to try to usher him into office real quick. So you find that when you read the Gospels, you actually don't see the word Messiah happen a lot. Now you do see it happen several times, but not as much as you see Jesus say son of man. I think one of the reasons we see is that that Jesus uses that son of man, it was a lot more unassuming. 
Only those that really were taking heed to the Old Testament scriptures would kind of catch all the connotations of that. But when you find him not using that word Messiah, that was almost an electric buzzword that would have excited a lot of people, especially in the region of Judea. So, you do find a couple times that he uses it. For instance, we're going to look in Matthew 16. He uses it with Peter here. You're going to find in John 4, he uses it with the Samaritan woman at the well. You're going to see, there's a couple other places we won't have time to turn to. You definitely see him use it, or it gets used of him at the trial. You see him using it in Luke 24, after the resurrection with the Emmaus Road disciples. He's free to use this word, Messiah, or the Greeks would say um, Christ. Just so you know, the word Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is denoting he is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the prophet, priest, king. He is the Genesis 3.15 promise that God would make all things right through the anointed one, the Messiah. So that word just wasn't used much in his ministry. It wasn't that he wasn't that. It wasn't that he did that. But you've got to understand the way the when the Bible's written and the different gospel authors are writing, they're writing on different aspects in ministry. And so you've really got to bear down and study some of what's going on. Have you ever noticed that several times that as you're reading, if you've read the gospels, and you'll get someone who you're discipling, who you're encouraging them to read the scriptures or reading with it. Have you noticed how many times Jesus does something is like, don't you tell anybody. And then you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to tell people about Jesus. Why is Jesus telling people not to say anything about him? Have you ever been... Wonder that question, like, why would he even say something like that? I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, and we'll just take maybe, I've got several, but I don't want to, actually, you know what? I'm just going to stick with Matthew 16 because he'll give it here. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. If you're looking for a title of the message, I would say, Messiah Christ, why did Jesus ask for silence? So you can say that if you're looking for a title. But in a minute, we're going to see that with the Samaritan woman, he doesn't ask for silence. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. This is a familiar portion of Scripture. But as you're discipling someone with the Gospels, they're going to start to ask questions about why does he say, don't tell anybody about him. Go to verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do people say that the, what does he say? Son of man is, because that was the wording he was using, right? It, it, you could float under the radar a little bit more, unless you were someone who actually knew the Old Testament scriptures and were looking. So it floated underneath the radar. Now, um, if Daniel, if you could keep that uh, picture back up, that that's going to help. So Caesarea Philippi, if you see Galilee, you see right to the right of it, you see the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is right above that somewhere, right? It's a very low Jewish population. And I would cite to you one of the reasons he could use it in this, for instance, is there's a low Jewish population. It would be the Jewish population that would want to be, be more escalate who the Messiah was, right? But also he needed to reveal it to his disciples at a key time. Now look in the text, we'll find a couple things. So he just said, verse 13, they're in the district of Philippi. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Side note, 
That's the biggest question any of us can answer in this room today. Doesn't matter what your mom says, Jesus, who Jesus is, or your dad, or your aunt, or your uncle, or your sister. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the biggest question you'll ever answer. Most important, two biggest things in life, were actually, it would be, one is, is Jesus your Lord and King, right? Biggest thing. Second thing would be who you're going to marry if God's called you into marriage, right? Who do you say Jesus is? Great question, verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the anointed one, all right? This is the, this, this is what the, this is what would be used for Greek-speaking people. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he says, you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Just a quick quiz. Is Jesus denying that he's the Christ, or is he affirming that? He's affirming it, right? So he's saying, yeah, I am exactly that. I am the Messiah. I am Christ. I am the anointed one. Now, he says in verse 19, verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. No, Peter's not the first pope. That's not what Jesus is doing right here. Peter had a mother-in-law. The last time I checked, if you have a mother-in-law, what do you probably have? Right. What, that would be the meanest thing God could ever do to you, right? Give your mother-in-law without a wife, right? You at least got to get the benefit of one. Verse 19, <laughs> It's Labor Day, okay, so, verse 19, yikes, okay, verse 19, just messing around with you guys, at least you didn't say amen, okay, verse 19, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven, this is great, isn't it, like, okay, Jesus is affirming, who do you say that I am, okay, and then we're kind of like, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, Let's go charge and tell everybody. And then Jesus says, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And when you're going through with a new disciple, you're discipling somebody and they run across this passage, they might be thinking like, wait a minute. You've been telling me I need to tell people all about this Jesus that you led me and told me about. But why is Jesus telling these guys not to say anything? Well, some of the reasons you find is that, one, there was a timetable when you read the Gospels of that God had sovereignly planned that Jesus was going to make his way to the cross. He did not want to excite that timetable. The Jews in Jerusalem were hyper-political, ready. And not just only the Jews in Jerusalem, but the Jews in Jerusalem and the region of Judea were a lot more excited about this idea of the Messiah than anything else. Jews in Galilee and the Galilee region were as well. You don't have a lot of Jews in the Samaritan region, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But he says, don't tell anybody who I am. Now, he's in Caesarea Philippi. It's at the top of, of, um, of, the, of the Galilean Sea. So we're in a pretty safe area. Not as much escalation is going to happen here. By the way, look what he does in verse 21. When you asked a Jewish person, what about the Messiah? They had no category for understanding he was going to suffer. They just thought conquering king, that's it. Notice Jesus comes in and says, let me tamper down your excitement for what you think Christ is going to be. He says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raise up the third day. Just so you understand, a Jewish person who heard this 
that didn't really match with their concept of what they thought the Messiah would be. Notice what Peter does. It's not shocking. People get on to Peter about his response in verse 22. It's not shocking. It just tells you what the average monotheistic Jew thought when it came to Messiah. Look at Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, you got to feel pretty strongly about sons of rebuke Jesus, don't you? I mean, you got to feel really confident that, like, Jesus, I know you're perfect, but I don't think you kind of know what you're talking about on this one, right? So he pulls him aside. You know what it's like when you pull someone aside? You're just like, man, bless his heart. I'm just going to pull him aside, and we're going to make sure this thing gets taken care of right. So he says, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Do you already see the passion wherewith they think about the idea of the anointed one, the Messiah? There is no category for suffering with the Messiah. There is only the category of exaltation. There's nothing that understands about execution, just exaltation. So, when you read the Gospels, you see a lot of Son of Man. You don't see as much of the phrase Messiah or Christ. You do see it, but there's certain situations that happens where it fits according to the timetable and the purposes of God in that moment. Jesus uses it here. It's in a relatively obscure area with not a lot of Jews. But then also, he needs his disciples to understand, as things will be escalating, that the Messiah is not just a conquering king. He's also one that will suffer. So, but you can see Peter's excitement. And he says, this will never happen. Then he turned to him and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. So, do you understand the, the, the passionate zeal of what a first century monotheistic Jew felt about the idea of the Messiah coming and overthrowing Roman political oppression so that they can be set free back into, the, back into have their kingdom, right? So, that's why you don't see the word Messiah used a lot. Now, what some people have done is taken that and said, oh, Jesus didn't ever claim to be the Messiah. These are detractors who don't believe the word of God is the word of God. And I would go, no, you just got to read the Bible in context, right? You can't, just can't pull things out. You've got to read it as it actually is. As a, as a, as a, You've got to read the whole entire book and really understand the life of Jesus. Now, I say all that to say this. So people would take that and go, I don't understand this. So, so then we don't have to tell people about Jesus, Right? No, we actually do. Because at the same time, you can find texts where Jesus reveals and agrees, I am the Messiah, and now you're to go spread it everywhere. Now go to John chapter 4. I'll show this to you. John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. For time's sake, um, man, there's other scriptures you can, you can read where Jesus is healing people, and he's like, don't tell anybody about it. Why is he saying that? Not because he doesn't want you to tell anybody about Jesus, because there's a time, there's a timetable of which he has that he does not want to excite those who would politically want to put their hands around him and usher him into some kind of kingdom was not the kind of kingdom he was establishing in his first advent, his first coming. At the same time, I would tell you this, you've noticed as you you'll read the gospels that sometimes crowds will throng him, and so at times depending on the situation and location, he may ask, don't tell anybody yet because throngs are going to come after him. But you notice, um, if you were to notice and you were to read over um, in Mark 5, you don't have to turn there, um, 
That he remember he cast the demon he cast the demons out right the legion you remember they go into the pig and kind of run off the edge y'all remember that story right but do you notice in that story like the guy goes out and tells everybody about it and he Jesus commends him and says go and tell everybody about it but guess where what region that guy was from it was in the Decapolis not as much threat that Jewish people were going to come and try to usher in the Messiah right so. There's different situations why you see that, but you have to read the Gospels as a whole. Now, it's interesting. We find the Samaritan woman is different. She learns the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one. And then she goes and tells others. Jesus never tells her, don't do it, right? But she does something very interesting. She goes and tells all. Now, go to John chapter 4. And let's look at this. What I'm trying to do is, I'm I'm just trying to build out, as you study the Gospels, as you try to disciple somebody with the Gospels, being able to answer questions like, why does it say Son of Man as much, right? I mean, I've not heard many people actually walk around and even say, you know, I believe in Jesus, the Son of Man. Most people go, well, he's the Son of God, or he's the Messiah, right? But that's why you, you see this used so much. But he is the Messiah, No doubt about that. He makes that plainly clear. Go to John chapter 4 and let's look at the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, the book of John, the book of John, the whole point of the book of John is that you would believe. That's the goal and intent of the author of the book of John. You can write this down. You have to turn over to it. But if you were to look at John 20 verse 31, he says this. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, does anybody know the next word? The Christ, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John comes in 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 John chapter 4 and does a little bit different with this Samaritan woman. He basically says, uh, catalogs that Jesus is the Messiah and is fine with it being told all around. Now, I submit to you, the reason is they're in Samaria. If you know anything about Samaria... Jewish people don't like Samaria, right? That's not where they're hanging. And to use that word, Messiah, in Samaria is not as much of an excitement to the average Jewish person. Now, it can be an excitement to a Samaritan. The Samaritans uh, were an amalgamation of, the, of some Jewish religion and then some other pagan religions from the captivity. But they did believe in the first five books of the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they believed in that. So they had the moral law. They had the idea of the Messiah. That wasn't something that was foreign to them. So as we get into the text of John chapter 4, I want you to understand that Jesus is now in Samaria in a place on his way up to Galilee into a place that's not very Jewish. So there wouldn't have been as much heat using that word Messiah or letting it get promoted and kind of spun around at that place. But make no mistake, there were timetables when he was completely, it was okay. Last week we read Matthew 26 and Mark and, and Luke have the same, same accounts where the high priest and the Sanhedrin are questioning Jesus. And they're saying, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, you've said so, right? Or he said, and he says in Luke's account, he says, I am, right? So it's not like Jesus wasn't, was afraid to embrace it. There was a... There was a purpose in the, 
in the process of redemption of embracing that publicly so that everything happened according to the purpose and plan of God. Just as a side note, we do understand this. Jesus, everything leading to the cross was calculated. It wasn't haphazard. God doesn't save and do his redemptive work in a haphazard way. He's on purpose, everything he does. Now, what's interesting, if you go to chapter 4 and verse 1, we'll kind of read through it. Actually, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 3. Let me read through some of this, and we'll kind of help untangle this, this idea of the Messiah. And then I'll explain what this empty jar or bucket or water pitcher is, why it's here. It's more than just for my thirst, right? So look at verse 3. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, but he had to pass through Samaria. So do you see? He's in Judea. He's going up through Samaria into Galilee. Now, the interesting thing is, you actually didn't have to go straight up through Samaria. Actually, Jewish people, they would either go around the west side of the coast, or they would travel up the Jordan River, make a little crossover, and go up into Galilee. Most Jewish people did not go through Samaria. But Jesus was going through Samaria to reveal that he was the Messiah, so that the Samaritans could come to Jesus. One interesting thing about the book of John, it's about believing, and believing that Jesus is the Messiah, And John, over and over in his gospel, uses the word cosmos, right? The world, right? To describe that Jesus loves the world, he uses it over and over. And John's making a point to his readers of saying Jesus is not only the Messiah of the Jews, but he's the Messiah of the Samaritans. He's the Messiah of the world. He's the Messiah of the Greek word cosmos for the world. So John's trying to accomplish something very important that Jesus is going through Samaria. John's trying to make sure you understand his gospel is for not just Jews to believe, but all. You remember who comes to faith in John chapter 3? There's a Jewish guy, right? By the name of Nicodemus, right? And he's in Judea. And two different kind of contrasts. You ever notice that in John chapter 3, the contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, right? Here's Nicodemus, he's a man. And here's Jesus, he's ministering to a woman. Nicodemus in chapter 3 is a moral man. This woman in chapter 4 is not, isn't a moral woman. Nicodemus in chapter 3 is a teacher of religion. She's more of a casual observer of her religion. In chapter 3, Nicodemus seeks Jesus. But in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, um, Jesus seeks the Samaritan woman, right? Kind of interesting what happens from chapter 3. The contrast. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. She comes in the middle of the day. Nicodemus is respected in his community. The Samaritan woman in chapter 4 obviously is not respected in her community. She's gathering water at noon, which most of the women gathered water in the evening. Well, there's a reason. But both were changed by Jesus when they were encountered by him. Now, let's look and read through the text, and I'll point some things out. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. What time is the sixth hour? Well, that's noon, right? It's, it's noontime, it's, and he's tired. So he's at a well, and something very unconventional, very unconventional situation culturally happens. Look in verse 7. And the woman of Samaria came to, the, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That's not a bad thing to say, good thing to say, right? But it's a little unusual because 
a, a Jewish man typically, any man in that culture, didn't typically talk to women in private. So this is a very unconventional situation. Jesus, being a, a teacher, a rabbi, wouldn't, wouldn't ever talk alone with someone who was an immoral woman, right? He already knew she was an immoral woman. That kind of wasn't a conventional situation. So we're not dealing with a conventional situation. Just a side note, have we all not discovered Jesus does not work according to convention? Have we not noticed that, right? Doesn't do it, right? So all these ways we think Jesus should be doing and acting in our life, we just might as well cut it out, okay? He, just, he does not do things the way we think he should be doing things. Not on top of that, Jesus is Jewish. Jewish people did not hang out with Samaritan people. Jewish people despise Samaritans. In fact, in John eight forty eight, when the Jews were throwing accusations at Jesus, they took two big things to accuse Jesus. They said, you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. So that's kind of, you know, if you were trying to pick out something bad, you would call Jesus a Samaritan. But no, here's Jesus, a Jew, a man, a rabbi, traveling up through Samaria. There's a divine encounter he wants to have with a Samaritan woman at the well. He wants her to know that he is the Messiah. And he wants her to tell other Samaritans he is the Messiah. So don't mistake this idea of him telling his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, don't tell anybody that we're not supposed to tell people. There is a unique reason for that. We are to freely proclaim that he is the Messiah. Now, what's interesting, look in, look in verse 8. And his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. By the way, what city do you think they're buying food from? What kind of people? If they're in Samaria, what kind of people are they buying food from? Samaritans. Genius. All right. Verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? She's like, Whoa, you're asking a drink from me? This kind of thing doesn't happen. Now, look in the parentheses. It says, For the Jews have no dealings with these Samaritans. Now, a lot of times, when you look up that word for dealings, it does mean like relationship. But in some definitions, you can see the idea of utensil, right? Now, most translators are going to put the word, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, and will say, um, you know, they, they didn't hang out together. And there's truth to that. But it wasn't 100% because, for instance, Jesus is, sends his disciples away to buy food from what kind of people? So I don't know about you, but if you're buying food from Samaritans, you have some kind of dealings with them, right? I'd like to submit to you, by the way, when you're looking up definitions, Greek words and stuff, you... You can't just pick any definition you want. You, the definition that goes with it is, is more than likely the context of what's going on. That's the unique definition. Sometimes Greek words can't have, or Hebrew words can't have multiple definitions. The, the d- definition goes with the context. Now, I cite to you, he's asking to get a drink. And if he's going to get a drink, is, is he asking for her to hold his ankles and just like plunge him down into a well and just like pull him up? No, there was probably a jar, right? A bucket a water pot, a utensil. So he says in verse 9, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I'd like to submit to you that actually what she was saying is, like, we don't drink from each other's utensils, right? This is dirty. We, we, don't, we don't come to the same place. But Jesus says, give me a drink. So she lets him know it's a very unusual situation. Not only is he talking to her, is he... Like a a woman alone, uh, but an immoral woman, a Jew with a a Samaritan, 
very unusual situation. He goes even so far to say, let me have your, your, your drinking utensil and let me go from it. Now, just so you understand, for all times and cultures, drinking from someone's utensil or eating from someone's utensil is a very intimate thing, right? I mean, what's the test of that you and your spouse are really one? Eat off each other's utensils. And most of you right now are going like, ew, I wouldn't do that. Well, God bless you, neither would I, right? So, like, eating utensils, just, you know how intimate that kind of sounds? If you don't think it is, just today, if you go out to eat, since we're not having family meal, walk up to someone's table, grab their fork, cut off a little piece of their enchilada, stick it in your mouth, put it back down, and, you know, and, you know, God bless you. Just walk off, right? It's not going to be right. Can you imagine even this? That he's saying, let me, let me drink out of your utensil. And she's like, wait a minute. We don't do these kind of things. That's, that's not what we do. Now, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says, you, you don't understand actually what's going on. So this is already a very unconventional situation. And this is actually a very unconventional conversation. He's about to reveal to her that he's the Messiah. And remember, that doesn't happen a lot in the life of Jesus until we start getting closer to the trial, right? But he's going to reveal that to her. Why is that? Because when Jesus reveals he's the Messiah, he means for others to be, know that he's the Messiah. Now, what's interesting is he also thinks, you know, like any kind of Jewish Jew would have thought that Jesus is now filthy and unclean. But as we've discovered over and over in the Gospels, like nothing makes Jesus unclean, right? He doesn't make something unclean. He makes it clean, right? That's why the leprosy doesn't overcome Jesus because Jesus is not sinful. Jesus is not unclean, right? He can do what others can't. This is why he can let the woman with the issue of blood touch him, and he's not unclean, but makes her clean, right? All these clean and unclean laws you see in the Old Testament, right? They, they aren't there just to make, you know, this kind of idea of, um, well, God's just persnickety. We're building a historical redemption to Jesus, the one who can't be made unclean. Now, look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Very unusual conversation. Verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then will you get this living water? (laughs) Does it look like she's going to go ahead and share her water pot with him? (laughs) She's kind of like, well, you don't have anything to draw with. You see kind of like we don't do this kind of a thing. Then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I give him will never, ever thirst. Side note, we get to just push on the tap, get water. Do you under, we understand their day, that was not an easy thing to do. That took a bulk of your day was spent trying to survive, trying to eat and drink. That was a consuming thought and idea back in that day. So for him to say, you'll never thirst again, you'll never do this again, it piqued her interest. But she's not exactly catching everything that Jesus is is saying here. Side note, don't ever be discouraged that when you minister the gospel to people and they don't get everything about it, sometimes you just have to keep keep planting and watering, planting and watering. God gets the increase. He says, but the water that I will give him 
will become to him a well of water springing to eternal life. So Jesus starts to show his cards and says, this water that I'm giving is a never-ending eternal life kind of water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. (laughs) She's still not quite getting the spiritual implications of this, but that's okay. She's in process. You know, sometimes when you minister the gospel to people, you got to understand they're in process. And verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come back here. Now notice, he doesn't go on talking about the water because there's something that she doesn't realize as a Samaritan that she should realize is that her biggest problem is her cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven. She is a Samaritan and Samaritans did, they had pagan ideas mixed in with their religion, but they did believe in the moral law. They did believe that thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus, knowing all things, once again proves that only a Messiah would actually know that kind of thing. Only the actual Son of God, only God incarnate would know this. But he points something out to her that you've got to do if you're ever going to become a believer. Go call your husband and come back here. What was he trying to do? He's trying to point out that she was a sinner. She didn't quite get that she was a sinner. She was caught up in all these kind of religious wars, but she wasn't understanding that her biggest need and her biggest problem in life is the wrath of God was on her, was coming for her, right? So he had to get her lost before he could get her saved. One of the things, if you're here today and you're kind of thinking, well, I'm a Christian because I have called out to him or I believe in Jesus, I would tell you, you're not a Christian if you don't believe you're a sinner deserving of the wrath of God and you think you're a good person. You're not a Christian. You're a Christian when you start to realize the wrath of God is what I deserve because of my sinful, broken, sinful nature. I need Jesus, who was the perfect man, satisfied God's law, and in my place suffered the wrath of God. And by faith, I trust in that. You're not saved by thinking you're a good person or doing good things. So he says, go call your husband and come back here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. There's a reason why she's had five husbands. There's been a lot of adultery in her world. And the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Let me make a side note. There's this idea that people say, well, you can be married simply by moving in together and declaring you're married. This woman was living with a man, and Jesus says, he's not your husband, right? So I just want you to understand, you just can't move in with somebody and go, you know, I declare you my spouse as much as you can say, I declare myself exempt from taxes, okay? just not going to happen. Notice in the scriptures, when there's a covenant happening, there's a public assembly, there's witnesses, there's... There's legal, there's documentation. So don't, don't go crazy and try to accept what the world has to say about what marriage is. If you're, married, if you're having a genuine marriage, it needs to be legal. It needs to have witnesses. It needs to be right. So Jesus points out her sin and says, the guy that's with your husband is not right now. He's appealing to the moral law of God. The woman now is starting to realize some things. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Don't you love this? She now starts at a kind of religious war kind of going on here. Um, On Sunday evenings, I've started to uh, do my weekly kind of harvest time over at Shelby Farms from 5 to 7. If you ever just want to like, hey, man, I need need some practice. I want to go someplace where there's lots of unbelievers. Man, you can come join me at Shelby Farms at 5 o'clock on Sundays. I mean, man, they're all over the place. Um, Last week, I got into a discussion with some Muslims, and I'm telling you what, it was like the theological back and forth, just this 
You know, she tries to do this kind of theological ping pong. But just one thing we got to know, it doesn't work with Jesus, okay? He's got way better responses than what you could ever think of. So she, she now goes to this kind of like, well, you're Jewish, I'm Samaritan. You say worship in Jerusalem. I say we worship right here. Jesus cuts through it all in verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is saying, hey, it, yeah, worship's been at Jerusalem at the temple. But now, verse 23, the hour is coming. And now is that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So he tells her, let's cut the theological arguments. I just want you to know, something's about to happen that worship will no longer be at this man-made temple, right? Worship's going to be everywhere and all over. This is a God for the nations, for the cosmos, for the world. And I want you to know this, that those who worship God worship him in spirit and truth. Just a side note, when he says spirit and truth, that word spirit, we're talking about we're worshiping him from an inner man perspective, meaning the desires of your soul, that's where everything starts right there. And the way you, I mean, like, for instance, a person commits adultery not because they just had a bad day or They commit adultery because they first lusted in their heart, right? A person commits murder not because it was just a crime of passion. They commit murder because they already had murder in their heart, right? So Jesus is pointing forward this idea that we worship Jesus. We start, it starts at idea of the inner man, the, the, the worship of the soul, and then makes its way out. But by the way, there's a mixture. We've got to worship Jesus from an, from an inner man perspective. We've got to desire him more than anything. He's got to become the treasure of our soul. How do we know Jesus is the treasure? Because he gets all the thoughts, right? So, for instance, if in our average day we're thinking more about our bank account than Jesus, guess who has the treasure of our spirit at that moment? But notice he says spirit and truth. Meaning this, you're never going to worship him right if you don't have truth. That's why this book cannot be just something that gathers dust. There's no way we'll ever worship him in spirit if we also don't worship him in truth. You've got to have those two things together, right? So he's pointing some things out to her that, man, this is great theology. Verse 25, and the woman said to him, I know that, what does she say? Messiah. Ooh, there's the word we've been talking about. That's a strong word. That's a big word. I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. By the way, you might notice in your Bible that word he is italicized. That means that's not in the original text. That's supplied by the translators for an ease of reading. So basically Jesus says, I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm it. I'm the Messiah. This is me. Now this may seem small, but that's actually really big. He didn't walk around doing that kind of thing many times. Now, what's interesting um, is that, look look what happens. And the woman, so he tells her, "I'm, I'm that guy. I am the Messiah. Verse 27, at this point, the disciples came. They were marveling that he was speaking with the woman. And no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking to this woman? So they just came back and You know, John's kind of like, they should have been concerned that he was doing that, but they don't even speak of that because they're just thinking about food, right? Of course, 
that's probably what we're thinking about right now as well. Right? So we can understand some of their pain and passion. But notice this. The woman left her water jar, went to the city. She has a bucket, a jar, but she leaves it when she discovers who the Messiah is. Hold that in your soul, and we'll come back to it. So verse 29, she says, Come see a man that told me all the things that I've done. Is not this the Christ? Is this not the Messiah, the anointed one? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So here's this thing. She knows he's the Messiah now. She goes and gets others. She is considered a woman of the night, right? She's going and gathering people. She's declaring what she knows. No, these people are coming. This is very unusual, everybody. This is very unusual. This is not conventional. None of this is. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Isn't this interesting, the disciples? By the way, this hadn't been revealed to Peter yet, right? Like, the story of Peter getting revealed is this is later. So, but they don't get to hear him say that Messiah, although, yes, they have inklings of who he is, of course. But in verse 32, they said to him, we have food to eat. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples are saying to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? (laughs) What's really interesting, Samaritan woman alone, she leaves. They're concerned about Jesus. You need to eat. People are coming like a harvest of, of Samaritans are coming, who this is not something that, a, that Jewish people would have expected. Meanwhile, these guys are like, the lady, the woman at the well was concerned about water. These guys are just concerned about food. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white to harvest. I saw one commentator say that if it's four months before the harvest, everything's probably pretty green. And white to harvest is more than likely maybe referring to the throngs of Samaritans are coming out that, and that there are these Samaritans coming in their clothes that kind of looks like a white harvest with the background of the green kind of fertile field. Don't know if it's true, but man, I really love the idea. Verse 36, even now he who roots is receiving wages, is gathering fruit for life eternal. So the one who sows, the one who roots may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap for what you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. So, conventional misunderstanding. Jesus' disciples misunderstand them all the time, right? They're kind of like, let's eat. Jesus is saying, I've got other food that you know, don't know about. Jesus, we got to eat. Meanwhile, there's throngs of people and Jesus' disciples are more interested in the food. Just want to take a step back and realize this. Does that ever describe us sometimes? Like God is doing something, but yet we're concerned about other things. And these aren't bad things. You got to eat, right? I mean, we got to eat. Look at me. I'm like withering away up here, right? I'm like, you know, I'm losing all my energy, right? But, but that's a joke, okay? But, but do we ever get concerned about some of those things? But yet Jesus has something else. Now look at verse 39. I find it's very interesting. So all this is very unconventional. Uh, unconventional encounter unconventional discussion. I mean, he's meeting with a woman, Jewish. I mean, he's Jewish. He's Samaritan. She's immoral. He's a rabbi. Now we also have this idea of he's having a conversation with her and says, I am the Messiah. Not a lot of this kind of thing happens. Of course, we're not surprised by his disciples' response. They do things all the time and kind of missing the point. And, but what I do find in the text is something very conventional. 
And the conventional is verse 39 through 43. The conventional thing is, if you discover Jesus is the Messiah, you can't do anything else but tell others about it. That's a very conventional thing. Look at verse 39. From the city, many of the Samaritans believed on him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. He told me all things I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. Could you imagine that? Two more days. And many believed because of his word, Jesus' word. They were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the savior of the world, the cosmos. John's getting across this point to his readers. For after the two days, he went up from there and he got back on track to Galilee. Very conventional response. Unconventional situation, unconventional discussion. But I would submit to you very conventional response of anybody who's truly met the Messiah. Now, now you know the idea of Messiah in the scriptures. Why you don't see it attributed to him as much or he doesn't embrace it as much and what's going on in the larger context and why he can do it at Caesarea Philippi, why he's doing it here, why we don't see it. We see him using the Son of Man. But as I end this sermon, there's still something else that I... So remember, you got the deal of he's a Messiah and he tells Peter, don't tell anybody. You see him doing miracles in other situations and he's saying, don't tell anybody. But here, she's free to go at it. Now, one of the things I ask myself is, okay, we clearly know that we should go at it today, right? We should tell people about Jesus today. Let's do it. But then I ask myself, how come she did and sometimes we don't? Like, what's the difference? I mean, she probably had a lot more against her, didn't she? I mean, if you were known to be an immoral woman and you were going to a well alone because of more than likely the ostracism from the community, wouldn't you kind of be hesitant to run into town and kind of go like, everybody come, I found the Messiah. Wouldn't you be afraid she'd just get like pelted or everybody would just ignore her? Like, who do you think you are? No, no, no. We don't find any excuses. She just goes. But there's something else in the text that really got me. This woman was at a well doing what when Jesus met her? What was, he, what was she doing? She's getting water. Water is very important, right? And to get that water, you had to have a jar, a pot, right? And how important is that jar pot that Jesus says, let me have a drink? And she's like, yeah, we don't do that. Okay, you don't get to drink from me. And, man, you need something to draw with. I mean, what are you going to do, right? What was really important to them was the jar, right? The jar. But go back and look back in chapter 4. And go to verse 28. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I'm who, I'm exactly that guy. Verse 28. So the woman left her, what? And went to the city and said to the men. And she starts declaring. You know what I find interesting? It, her water jar wasn't, a, it wasn't bad to fill a water jar. That's a normal thing. Like you had to get water. Jesus was there. He'd like some water, Right? But when she found out who the Messiah was, she was willing to drop the jar. She was willing to drop the jar. What would have stopped her in that moment more than likely would have been, oh, well, awesome. Let me go ahead and get this water and let me haul it back. Let me kind of protect my jar. 
But at that point, when she discovered Jesus was Messiah, she drops her jar. Not a bad thing. And says, there's something now that is of a higher priority in my life. Now it's time to go make disciples because I know who the Messiah is. Now it's interesting, I think, that John takes note and says she dropped her jar. Now I don't, I don't know if the application is what John's wanting us. I'm, I'm thinking more than likely John is doing this because he wants his readers to understand he's a witness, eyewitness account, and everything he's write, writing that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah is true and correct. But I do find this. Because she dropped her jar, it showed that she could move faster, swifter. The priority of the moment was making disciples. And you know what was really interesting? Who did she leave her jar with? Jesus. Now, what did Jesus do with that jar? I don't know. He was already kind of going against convention. He might have went and got some water. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what he did with it. But I do know this. Whatever that good thing was, you could just leave that jar with Jesus and go make disciples. So you take the metaphor wherever the Holy Spirit would want you to take it. But I do find this. God has called us as a result of the good news that Jesus is the Messiah to spread the word. Don't take the things of saying like we can't. No, you can. We see it right here. And I ask myself sometimes, what stops us from making disciples? And sometimes it's very good jars. It's very good buckets. It could be like, man, I've, I've got these things in life that have to happen first. And I would say, have you considered, have we considered that some of those jars we need to put down for just a little bit and go make disciples? That doesn't mean you can't ever come back to it. But I'll tell you this, you put it with Jesus and that jar is going to be safe. So my question is, sometimes when I'm looking at Messiah, I'm asking myself, like, what is it that's getting in our way? It could be even a very good things that are slowing us down from making disciples. Now, the, the last thing is this. I don't think the water pot's anything sinful or anything. I'm just finding it interesting. Whatever, was, whatever could slow her down in that moment wasn't worth slowing down, right? But I do find this. If you want to take the metaphor and press it for, forward even more, I don't think the, the jar was sinful or anything, but I will tell you this. What does stop us from making disciples sometimes is we have a jar full of sin in our own life. And actually, what really does stop us is we just love something more than Jesus. And until we change the idea and start worshiping in spirit and truth, until we repent of sin and come to him, that, that jar of sin will always keep us from making disciples. So as we stand to our feet, I want to pray with you. We're going to sing to the Lord, and then we're going to take communion. Um, as we sing, we're going to start passing out the communion cups. And then in the middle of this song, I'm going to, we're going to offer you a chance to edify each other. If that's something that you've come this morning, then we're going to finish taking communion. But as we take our, the Lord's Supper today, can we ask this question of ourselves? What jars or jar needs to drop so, we can be a, so that we can go out and make disciples? What, what thing is weighing us and slowing us down in the moment? Now, these aren't necessarily all bad things. It would be good things. But when you know he's the Messiah, he becomes the most important thing. Father, we're so thankful that we can call you the anointed one, Christ, the Messiah. We know we get to freely declare, just like the Samaritan woman, Lord, where we need to. Lord, Holy Spirit, do the application that you can do about what jars need to drop. They've been stopping us from making disciples.
help us in that. We want to adore you and love you as God's people are called to do. And God's people said, amen.